Jay's Four Questions is brought to you by the Jewish Federation of Greater Los Angeles. Through its impactful work and partnerships, the Federation touches every Jewish life in Los Angeles, Israel, and around the world. For more information, visit www.jewishla.org. The following is an exciting Jay's Four Questions recorded in front of a live audience. This week, I have my own personal therapy session with best-selling author and psychotherapist, Lori Gottlieb. Her best-selling book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, is being adapted now as a TV series by Eva Langoria. We talked about the importance of listening, how the internet has become the most effective short-term non-prescription painkiller, and her love for her mother's brisket. Welcome to Jay's Four Questions. My guest today is Lori Gottlieb. Lori Gottlieb is two things that I relate to, a fantastic storyteller and a, an extraordinary therapist. And she's been able to blend these two things in her life and in her work as a best-selling author of this book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, as well as her Atlantic uh, column, Dear Therapist. She's a best-selling, award-winning author and an extraordinary human being from everything I've heard and read about her. She is doing great work, and we need great therapists in this crazy world we live in today. So, Lori, it is fantastic to talk to you. Oh, it's my pleasure to have this conversation with you. So, I am also a storyteller, and as many of the women know, I'm surrounded in my life by psychologists. My wife is an analyst, my daughter's getting a PhD in clinical psychologist, even my son, who's become a rabbi, is specializing in mental health. So I'm very comfortable talking to you, especially if I don't have to pay your hourly rate. <laughs> That's okay, because you won't get the service that you're not paying for. <laughs> <laughs> I, actually, I actually thought about getting a sofa and just laying down, but this gets in the way. Well, I have to say, just, just having, like, is this Beverlywood Bakery right here? This is, the, this is for the end of the podcast. Oh, okay. This, is the, only, this is the only podcast where they fed me during the podcast. It's great. I will feed you at the end. So I am very, very obsessed with people's personal journeys, and yours is very unique. If I had met you um, when you were a teenager and had asked you, Lori, what did you want to do when you grew up, what would you have said? You know, when I was a teenager, I had no idea what I wanted to do when I grew up. Um, I was a chess player. I was on the math team. Um, and then I was also, you know, like writing in my diaries all the time. So I think that, I think that at the time I would never have guessed that those related to what I do today. Um, and I ended up taking this, for those of you who read the book, you know I took this very, very, probably the most nonlinear path possible to becoming a therapist. Um, I started out after college working in the entertainment business. Um, I worked as a film executive and then I moved over to NBC. Um, when I got to NBC, they, two shows were premiering. You may have heard of them, these little shows. One was called ER um, and one was called Friends. And I was obsessed with the stories. Both of those shows I think were about the human condition, even a sitcom. I think they really got into sort of heartbreak, loss, um, you know, how do we navigate through our struggles? And 
ER did that in particular, and there was a, a consultant on the show who was an actual ER doctor, and I would spend a lot of time in the ER with him, supposedly doing research, I put that in air quotes, um, because I love being in the ER. I love seeing those really rich human stories. I think that, you know, as we all know, when somebody comes to an ER, they're not there because they expected something to happen. So usually there's an inflection point when somebody comes to an ER. Um, and I ended up, um, you know, at one point he said to me, I think you like it better here than you like your day job. And so I ended up um, going to medical school. I went up to Stanford. And when I got there, it was the, the height of the dot-com boom right before the bust. And um, it was also when managed care started coming into the medical profession. And a lot of my professors um, said, you know, I was so interested in kind of the stories that people would bring and kind of, I wanted to be the family doctor who guides people through their lives. And it seemed like in this new era of 15 minute visits and insurance companies and the whole thing that I wasn't gonna be able to do that. And I ended up leaving medical school to become a journalist where I felt like I could really delve into people's stories and help people to tell their stories. Um, and it wasn't until later after I had a baby when as any of you who are parents might remember, um, you don't get a lot of adult interaction <laughs> when you're taking care of a newborn. And, um, and the UPS guy would come and I would try to engage him in conversation because I was so starved to talk to another adult. And at some point he literally would like tiptoe to my door and gently place the packages down so that I wouldn't open the door and be like, hey, how about those diapers? And you know, try to engage him in conversation. And so I realized I needed to do something that wasn't writing at home. And I called up the dean at Stanford and I said, maybe I should come back and be a psychiatrist. And she said, listen, if you come back, you're, gonna, you're welcome to come back, but you're going to be prescribing Selexa in 15-minute intervals. That's not what you talked about when you were here. Why don't you get a graduate degree in clinical psychology, and then you can do psychotherapy. And that really married all of these things that I had always done, which was sort of the analytical, mathematical side, the chess side, the how do you think several moves ahead when you're trying to get somebody to a different place. And then also just the very human side that I had always liked and the, the storytelling side. So I think everything I did was ultimately about story and the human condition. And so much of, of, of the relational part of our lives um, is about community. When you look around this room, this is, this is what community looks like to me. Uh, I'm wondering in terms of your, um, your beginnings in your life, you grew up in, in Southern California, if you had a Jewish aha moment, a moment in your life um, where, where being Jewish meant something to you as well as all the other parts of you? I think that I always tried to understand what being Jewish meant. And at different times in my life, it meant very different things. And there were times when I felt very close to being, you know, to, to my Judaism. And I think there were times when I felt like very distanced from it, um, as particularly I think in those like college years. Um, and I think when you, you come back home, you know, after college, I think being in a Jewish community, um, you know, having sort of reconnecting, I think, with the values, the outlook, and I think just the people, um, it's very comforting. There's a sense of home. And I think that when, you know, when you say, look, what is my connection, I think, to Judaism, I think a lot of it has to do with this feeling of community. And, you know, I'm, I'm struck now with the image of the UPS driver. Now, now in a way, you, you, you flipped it, right? Because my guess is when you do events like this, um, and I know this from my own, my, own, my own family story, when you do events like this where you're somewhere in public and people know who you are, 
they are more than willing to come up to you and be the other side of the UPS conversation, right? <laughs> Which is Lori, my daughter, she, you know, didn't come home last night. I'm having issues with her. So are all your relationships now in the public space around people bringing to you the other side of the UPS story, people's problems and issues? That's so funny. I hadn't thought of it that way. You know, when I, when I have been on book tour, um, when you sign books at the end of events, so many times they have to have a person at the line to make sure because everybody wants to tell you their story. Right. And I want to hear their stories, but we don't have 10 minutes per person, right, um, to do that. And so I think what's great about the book is that it allows people, I think it gives them permission to talk about what's going on in their lives. I think that, you know, when you, when you hear, when you read the book and you see, basically in the book, for those of you who haven't read it, I, I follow four very different patients throughout their experiences. And then I also, there's a fifth patient and the fifth patient is me. So you see me as a clinician working with these patients and then there's me as a patient working with my therapist. And um, I think that what happens is when people see themselves in these stories, even if these people look very different from them on the surface, um, they feel less isolated, they feel less alone. It normalizes the human condition. It normalizes our struggles. And so I think people feel more free to say, Here's what's going on in my life. And when the title of the book, I think a lot of people think that maybe you should talk to someone is, is saying to people, maybe you should talk to a therapist. But for me, it means maybe we should all be talking to each other more. Maybe we should all be talking to someone. And it isn't so much a talking a part of it, but the other part of your job, maybe 80% of your job, is the listening part. Yes. So t tell us a little bit about the listening, because I think it's easy for me to tell you my source. Do you, I don't think we have enough time, but, but it's, it's harder to be the person listening. And, and so, so much of your life and job is around listening. Yeah. I would say two things about that. I would say, one, we live in this culture now where people don't really know how to listen. And especially, I have a 13-year-old son, and I see him and his friends, and I see the way that they will all be together, and they'll be like on their phones. My son doesn't have a phone yet, much to his chagrin. Um, but. I, that it's coming, I know, and and I see all of his friends do have phones, and they don't really listen to it. They're kind of talking and they're scrolling through phones, and they don't have that I thou experience of looking at somebody, sitting in the same physical space with them, and having a conversation, and knowing what to do with the body language, the silences, um, the pauses, those kinds of things. And I think the other thing is I see a lot of couples in my practice, and a lot of times somebody will come in and they'll say he doesn't listen to me or she doesn't listen to me. And sometimes what I'll say back to them is, how well do you listen to them? Because if you really want to be heard, you have to know how to listen. And is that something that you felt like you already had that skill as you gone into this or did you gain that? Because you're, you know, having spent so much of your life doing other things, um, some of that probably prepared you for where you are right now. Some of it you had to, you don't, learn how to listen in a classroom. I mean, maybe you do, but generally, not this kind of listening. Yeah, I think the kind of learning to listen that you do in graduate school feels very inauthentic. It's, um, it's almost like a, like a learned way of interacting. And I think what really happens in the therapy room is it's this very rich human experience. And um, you need to be able to sit with somebody and not fix it. You need to be able to sit with somebody and think about why are they telling me this right now? What is the meaning of this for them? Um, how can I move them forward? So it's, it's a very, it's a, 
you know, it's a it's a skill that that happens, I think, through practice. It's it's a little bit different from how we interact out in the world, but I think it's very transferable because I think that so many people um, can be so helpful to each other if they knew how to listen better. So I, I started by asking you what your teenage self would be thinking about. Now I'm I'm wanting to go forward because. Um, I did not say this in my introduction, but I can say this now, but this book, maybe you should talk to, to someone, is going to be uh, a television series, right? So um, you started in television at ER and Friends, and now you're back to television. So if I met you on the street in five years, are you still seeing patients? Are you back in the media, but back in the media in a different way? Because you are in the media and you are seeing patients right now, but you're moving. Obviously, once this becomes a TV show, who knows, right? So what are you thinking about the future of Lori Gottlieb? Yeah, so many people ask me that, and I'm so confounded by it, because I would, I, you know, I love what I do. Um, and I, I think that each of the pieces of my career um, are complementary. So, um, you know, I think that practicing as a clinician helps me as a writer. Being a writer helps me in the room with people as a clinician. I feel like a lot of my job as a therapist is, is almost being an editor. And you know, because I was a journalist for so long, I have so much practice talking to people, helping people to really tell the story that they want to tell, helping them to see the parts of the story that they didn't even know they wanted to talk about. Um, and then I think that, that when they come into the therapy room, they come in, you know, we're all unreliable narrators of our own lives. We all come in and we tell a story and we're so sure that that is the accurate version of the story. And it's one version of the story. And if I asked other people involved in the story, they would tell a very different version of the story. There would be some overlap, but there would be parts of it that feel like two completely different stories. I've even had in my Dear Therapist column, um, somebody write in with a problem and another person involved in the problem write in and I put two and two together and I realized they're telling two different versions of the same exact story and they're asking for my advice. By the way, I do want to defend this group. This group, when they tell you the story, it's the truth. <laughs> it's I mean, true. you look at this. I mean, this is the most honest, authentic group of women you could possibly meet. Their, their significant others are telling a different story. It's not true. Yeah, they're telling The people in this not room true. are telling the accurate version. But, but I think that, that what happens is I help people to edit their stories because so many of our stories are about the problem is out there. The problem is situational. The problem is circumstantial. The problem is my partner, my parent, my child, my coworker, right? And, and maybe in part, that is the problem. But how do you respond to these people? What is your response? And how, what is your role in contributing to the problem? Um, and, and a lot of times when people come in, what I'm listening to, I like to say that I'm listening to the music under the lyrics. So the lyrics are, here's what's happening, here's the problem. And I'm listening to the music under that. What is the underlying struggle or pattern that got you into the situation in the first place? Because it might not just be this one problem, but there might be some blind spot that you have that is, that is you know, leaving you in the same place over and over in different situations. So I'm kind of playing the long game where I want them to see, is there something that you're doing in your life that if you can see it, it will help you to navigate so many things more smoothly and not just this one discrete problem that you came in with. So that's great. And, and, and we all are so many things. And you referenced you're the mother of a 13-year-old. You're the mother of a 13-year-old in a world that couldn't be crazier. So I'm wondering how all these, all these experiences you have are, contribute to the kind of mother you are and how you're, how you're seeing your son right now versus 
what someone else might be seeing. Yeah, it's funny. What kind of mother am I? Um, I didn't mean it like so, that. So, no, no, what I mean, it's funny because I think that, um, you know, there's this joke about, like, you know, the upside of being the child of a therapist is that nothing gets swept under the rug. The downside is that you'll be totally screwed up anyway. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, you know, get the therapy fund ready. Um, but, um, you know, I, I think that I try to be really intentional with my son um, in, you know, for, for better or worse, about, you know, talking about what's really going on. I think, you know, he's a, he's a kid who's very, um, will act very uninterested in talking about his emotional life, and yet every day he talks about his emotional life in a way that startles me. Um, part of it is he goes, he goes to this great school where they have um, this wellness program and they learn to talk about their emotions and he brings that home. So I don't think it's necessarily me. Um, but I also think that I create an atmosphere where um, I leave a space for him to talk about that without trying to get it out of him. So um, you went from the media to where you are right now. I went from the media to where I am right now, running the Jewish Federation of Greater Los Angeles. And one of the reasons I do the podcast is I'm desperate for people to help me do my job better. So one of my four questions is about how I could do my job better. And the question I ask all my guests is, and from your vantage point, what do you think the greatest challenges are facing, or the greatest challenges facing the Jewish people today? Mm. Because that's my job, trying to figure that out. Yeah. I think that this lack of community um, is, is a problem. I think that a lot of people say, you know, especially younger people say, well, why do I need to be a part of this? Why do I need to be involved in this? Um, you know, what happens if I don't believe in God? Um, you know, all of these questions about what does it mean to be Jewish? Um, my son had a bar mitzvah last year. Mazel tov. Thank you. And when it, when it was over, he said, that was the best day of my life. And I think that, that it, it, the, going through that experience was so meaningful for him. And I think that before going through that experience, he had a lot of those questions too. So I think that, that one of the problems is that I think that people need to understand sort of what is the meaning of this? Why is this important in my life? And do you have answers? Well, I think for, for every person, it's going to be different. I know why it's important for me. I know why it's important for my son. I think for every person, it's going to be different. So, but, for, but somebody needs, yeah. to, needs to have that conversation with them. So you also referenced something else I have a little bit of obsession with, which is the concept of God. Now, you, you have a math brain, and you, you went to, to medical school, and you did all these things, and um, at a point we are in right now, faith becomes a challenge. So I also ask my guests the question of, if you could ask God one question, Lori, what would that one question be? Oh, I only get one? Only? <laughs> That's so hard. Um, you can challenge that. You can give me 10. I mean, you know, the truth is, when I ask four questions, there could be 20 answers. I'm just... I'd want God to sit on my couch and do a therapy session. That's what I would want to do. I would have a lot of questions. You would have a lot of questions. And, and the question would be, how much would you charge God for the therapy session? It would be, it, it would be comped. <laughs> so being from Los Angeles, living in Los Angeles, now traveling around the country, are you seeing differences between LA and other places? I know you, this, you, know, you obviously get letters from all over the place uh, at the Atlantic. What do you see as the challenges that LA faces, people living in LA face, that might be different than, than other communities you're going to? Mm -hmm. 
One of the things I really wanted to do in the book was to show that we're all more the same than we are different. And I think that when people think of therapy, they think of LA, New York, San Francisco, Chicago, right? Um, you know, just being a person in the world, you're going to struggle. That, that's just, there's no way around it. Um, and I think that, um, you know, everywhere that I've traveled to, people are so similar. They're so similar in sort of the, their existential questions in terms of their, the universal struggles, loss, grief, regret, um, uh, you know, all kinds of things, um, whether it's anxiety, depression, um, how to get along with people, relationships, right? How to get along with the people we love the most. Um, so, um, you know, in this world today, most people are expressing a lot of anxiety um, around what's going on. Um, a lot of pressure, a lot of disconnection. I would say that, that no matter what people are talking about, there tends to be an underlying kind of uh, feeling of loneliness, um, even if they're surrounded by people. Again, what I was talking about earlier, that, that we don't have enough opportunity to just sit with each other um, without our phones going or some distraction, something pinging or ringing or vibrating. Um, even people who come to therapy, they say, you know, look, can I just do a Skype session? Um, and I, um, I hope I can say this in this crowd, but um, a, a colleague of mine calls Skype sessions. She said it's like doing therapy with a condom on. And because <laughs> Jay's like, oh no, we're going to edit that out. No, I'm um, not editing that out. Um, it's going to change everything I think from now on. <laughs> but it's, but it's, it's true. There's something very different about the energy in the room of sitting in a room with somebody versus talking to somebody mediated by a screen. Even if you're seeing everything, you can see their, their, their facial expressions, you can see the way their bodies move, you can see all of that on Skype. But what you don't get is the energy of sitting in a quiet room with somebody for 50 minutes straight with no interruptions. And there is something so, uh, I think, um, unique about that, that we don't get out in the world, and we should. Um, and so I think that no matter where I go on tour, um, I'm seeing a lot of that sort of existential loneliness. And, but you're not seeing it different in a big city like Los Angeles versus a, small, a smaller city. I'll tell you, I see couples have come up to me in every city and said, you know, at night we're co-computing on our computer. You know, we're like, you know, we don't, we're, or I'm watching a show in here and he's in there. You know, it's just, there's a lot of, there's a lot of distraction in the physical space of the home that is taking away from a lot of what used to happen, which was just you had to be, there, there was some- You had to be present. You had to be present, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and look, I think that technology has a lot of pluses, but it's certainly getting in the way of relationships. If you can, you know, and I think everybody here feels really good that you're having constant communication with your daughters or sons, even though it's just a one-line text. And I think that obviously that's a change, right? If you were uh, providing therapy 25 years from now, it's, it, it, that doesn't get in the way, which I think is admirable that your son doesn't have a, a cell phone yet, but you also allude to the fact that the time is coming. Right, so. I'm not anti-technology at all. I just, I, I feel like I wanna give him as much time as possible um, interacting in person with people um, you know, I'm sure, you know, in the next six months, he's going to have a cell phone. Um, but but I, I've held out because I wanted him to have that experience for as long as possible. So if I was negotiating on his behalf, what's going to get him a cell phone in six months versus tomorrow? How are you going to decide when that right moment is? Um, well, first of all, you know, we had this conversation around his bar mitzvah because his bar mitzvah was a cell-free bar mitzvah. Um, and I really wanted the kids to be able to 
be at a party where sometimes you don't know who to talk to. Sometimes you don't want to dance. Sometimes, you know, and what do you do in those awkward moments besides grab your phone? You know, I think these are skills that kids need to have in life. What do you do? I was standing here. I didn't know anybody when I came in. I was standing there. It was a little awkward, but, you know, I didn't pull out my phone, and I, I, I survived. Um, and so I, I, I think that that's something that we need to know how to do in life. If somebody in this room or somebody listening to the podcast um, was res resistant to go into therapy but needed therapy, what would you advise them? I think we have a very different way of looking at our emotional lives than we do with something like physical health, for example. So if something feels off in our bodies, like you're having some, something feels weird, like maybe some chest pain or something, and it's really mild, you'll probably still go get that checked out before you're having a massive heart attack. But if something feels off emotionally, often we minimize it. Um, and we say, well, it's really not that bad, or I don't really need to do anything about this, or we distract ourselves with, you know, food or wine or, again, our phones, or um, a colleague of mine calls the internet um, the most effective short-term non-prescription painkiller out there. <laughs> um, so we'll distract ourselves with anything, right, um, instead of going to talk about what's going on. And then it gets really bad, let's say, and that's when a lot of people land in my office. And I feel like, why do you need to wait that long? You know, why do you need to struggle unnecessarily? And also, why do you wait until you're having the equivalent of an emotional heart attack to go talk to someone? And I, I like to say to people that there's no hierarchy of pain, that a lot of people will say, well, my pain isn't really bad compared to X, Y, or Z. Um, pain is pain. Um, you don't, it's not a competition. If you're feeling, if you're struggling with something, why not get help? Why, why, do we, you know, why do we value preventive medicine so much with our physical selves, but when it comes to our emotional lives, we don't do prevention. We wait until something is happening, and then we, and then we come in, and then we're really in trouble. I think, that's, I, I think that's exactly right. And I think, that the, I think one of the interesting things people don't recognize is the connection between the physical and the emotional and the psychological, and that it's OK to feel bad. Right? If it's okay to be down. It's okay. We're hard on ourselves. We think we should, we should be happy and up all the time. It's not, life is not like that. Right. So many people come into therapy and basically they say, help me not to feel. Right? I don't want to feel this anxiety. I don't want to feel this sadness. I don't want to feel this grief. Um, and, and what they don't realize is that you can't mute one feeling without muting all of them. So a lot of people, what they do in response to help me not to feel is they try to numb themselves, right? They try to like, they just go numb and they feel nothing. And, and numbness is not an absence of feeling. Numbness is being overwhelmed by too many feelings. It's an overload of feelings and now you've shut down. And that means that you can't feel joy. So you might have shut down your pain, but you've also shut down your joy and you're kind of sleepwalking through life. So, um you know what makes me joyful? Food. <laughs> so people know when they listen to the podcast, I talk about God, I talk about Judaism. What I really, if at the end of the day, I could only talk about one thing, it would be food, which is why the food is in front of us Very right excited now. for this part of the podcast. Okay. So do you, Lori, have a favorite Jewish food memory? <laughs> favorite Jewish food memory? Um, you know, so many, just all of our, all of our, family gatherings were about, you know, food, obviously, what was, you know, sort of the center piece of the, of the gathering. So, you know, my mom's brisket, um, 
bagels, um, Beverlywood Bakery, everything there. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, I remember, I bring my son there, I remember going as a child to Beverlywood Bakery and they'd give you, you know, a free cookie um, and they do the same thing for my son and there's something so moving about that, that, you know, to be able to go there and have that memory of me being the child, me being, you know, this tall, now my son's way taller than me, but um, when he was little, just being, looking in the glass and picking out your cookie, um, you know, the rugula, um, it, it, it connects you through the generations. Have, have you uh, traveled to Israel in your life? I have never been to Israel. You've never been to Israel? I know, they're going to kick me off the stage. The cane is coming. No, no, like that's all right. We're just going to have to find a way to take you to Israel. That's what we'll have to do. Well, I end my podcast with, with an either-or uh, question. It's the same either-or question for everyone, and you referenced it. So when, in front of us right now is a plate, not from Beverly Wood, um, of babka and rugula. And the, often this question, Lori, is the toughest one, which is what do you prefer, babka or rugula? Oh, and I this brought this plate with you uh -huh. in case you needed to do a taste test before we go into the end of our podcast. I'm, I'm gonna, I already know my answer. Really? I do. This is easier than the God question. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm going with rugula. All right. See? Yeah, but by the way, if we had said babka, the other half of, of the room would, would clap. Lori, this has been a pleasure. Thank you for being on Jay's Four Questions. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. And, and more importantly, I think thank you for opening up so many people's eyes to the power of therapy, to the power of relationships, and how it's okay to not be okay. So thank you very much, Lori. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Stay tuned for future episodes of Jay's Four Questions to hear the most inspiring and surprising conversations with today's incredible Jewish thought leaders. Jay's Four Questions is a co-production of the Jewish Federation of Greater Los Angeles and Lira Productions.